Thank you, Mike. As you're opening your Bibles to James chapter 1, if you don't have a bulletin, I would like you to have one. This is probably the most unusual note-taking outline you've ever seen, but I want you to have one of those, so if, if you need one, raise your hand and somebody will bring you one. That will be useful to you throughout the message. It will be the easiest note-taking outline you've ever had, and uh, we will use it at the end as well. Well, James certainly has a lot to say about dealing with trials, doesn't he? And we've seen a lot in these weeks that we've been in this book. One of the main takeaways from chapter 1 is that these adverse circumstances are God's instruments for producing the life of Christ in us. I don't have a clicker. My clicker is being very transparent this morning. And here it comes. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Ryan. He's our technical specialist. Thank you, brother. We saw this illustration a few weeks ago. John the Baptist said, He must increase, but I must decrease. And I believe that's a summary of the whole Christian life. God is killing us. <laughs> He's killing our flesh with adversity that he sovereignly brings in our lives. Our job is to not kick against it, but receive it and accept it as from him and let him do his perfect work. That's why we can obey what it says early in the chapter. Consider it all joy. Not because we love going through difficulty. If you do, there's something psychologically wrong with you. But as a spiritual person, you can accept the adversity of what God is doing because he's killing you and producing the life of Christ in you. And so, I see that arrow? As you move through life, there ought to be less and less of you and more and more of Jesus showing through. That is, in essence, what James is teaching us. And so, in today's passage... Y'all remember getting report cards in school? There it is. I was, always hated that, didn't you? Well, in a manner of speaking, God has given us a passage that serves as a report card. Well, thank you, Brother Dave. It's time for me to take a nap now. No, it's time for us to listen and to remember that what God gives us no matter how difficult it may sound, is for our good. And James gives us four instructions here that will serve as a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's control in our lives. How we're doing, if you will, by embracing what God is doing in the midst of trial. So I want to read the passage, and if you are able to stand physically, I would like you to give reverence to the Word of God with me. And stand, please. I know that about half of you use the ESV. I happen to have the New King James in front of me this morning, so that is the passage. That is the version. Starting in verse 19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Father, we bow our hearts and our minds and our spirits before your word. You are the king of the universe. You are the creator of all things, and you have created and given us life, and then you have recreated new life within us, all who have been born of your spirit. So, Father, in this hour, we, we pray that we as incredibly needy people would all unify, be unified in our surrender to you and as in what you reveal to us in your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is clear that it may cut us going one way, but it heals with the other cut coming back. It is a double-edged sword. It cuts away our sin and prunes us if you, into growth and maturity in Christ. We offer ourselves to you. Take a moment, and just in the quietness of your heart while you're standing before the Lord, Offer him the receptivity of your heart this morning. Lord, you hear the humble prayers of your people. And we pray that you would speak to us and change us more into your image and for your glory. Amen. Please be seated. The first thing that James wants us to know is that we must have open ears to what God is saying. Verse 19 says, So then, my beloved brethren, he speaks to them in terms of his, father, his brotherly family love with them. He says, Let every man be swift to hear. The implication here is that we must be listening to God. Verse 5 of the same chapter says, If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. The context is amid trials. Which one of us doesn't lack wisdom in the midst of trials? Yes, we must ask, we must listen. And to grow in the midst of trials, and that's what we're talking about today, how we actually achieve growth, how we know we're growing, in order to grow, we must first be attentive to the voice of of God. How does he speak? Primarily through his word. He also speaks through people who are giving you the truth, speaking the truth to you in love. Being swift to hear means that we must submit to God's process of transformation through the trial that we are experiencing. 
and see it, seeing the trial as a fresh opportunity to hear from God anew. Next, he says, restrained lips. He says, let a man be swift to hear and slow to speak. I remember being in a board meeting on the first, in the first church that I was ever on staff of, and the church had many, many difficult issues. The meetings were paralyzingly long and boring. And apparently I said something in the meeting that one of the elderly deacons didn't really appreciate. <laughs> and so to his credit, he approached me after the fact to tell me about his point of disturbance. And I listened politely. He was much older than me, and I was a young man at the time. And I thanked him for coming to me, but then with a smile I said, if you only knew how much I didn't say, you'd be proud of me. <laughs> I, he, he didn't think that was funny. <laughs> I still think it's funny. The point is in me sharing that story with you is that we have to restrain ourselves sometimes. And God says that, listen, if, if we're going to grow through trials, this thing right here needs to close. It needs to be restrained. Why? He's not talking about the cessation of all speech. Because certainly we ought to speak to God in prayer, right? That requires our mouths. We ought to be worshiping. You can't stop worshiping. In fact, it's even more important when you're going through difficulty. So that's, it's not talking about the cessation of all verbiage. Context. It is the eradication of words. Listen carefully. Words that will clutter my ability to hear from God. When James says us that we should be quick to hear, he's talking about a heart that has exalted the supremacy of listening to God's voice. He, when he says that we must be slow to speak, he's talking about a heart that has learned to control its utterances so that God's voice can be heard. Thirdly, he says, growth requires controlled emotions. Slow to wrath, he says. Now, look at me for just a second. I know I'm not much to look at, but I want to see. I want. I want your attention. Have you? Has it ever dawned on you that the God who indwells you as a believer wants to control your emotional reactions? I know that might be revelation for some of you, and that's okay. That's why we're here to understand God's word. But listen to what he says. Let every man be slow, to, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Why? What's the rationale? What's the what's verse twenty? For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Wrath here is used in the context. Put it in context. I know there's a holy anger. I don't really know much about that. Every time I've gotten angry, even if it was holy for just a few seconds, I usually bleed sin into it, and it destroys the whole thing. But in this context, there is a wrath being talked about that comes as a result of temptation amid the trial. Some trials can be very, very painful, and we can get very tired of them long before they're over, and that begins to can produce adverse emotions within us. And God knows that in this fallen world, there are many, many things to fuel our anger. And he also knows that we cannot allow ourselves to be ruled by it. That's why we must keep short accounts on our anger. Taking the wrong road. If you're on a trip and you take the wrong road, at best, you're going to be delayed. 
Worst case scenario, you're going to miss your destination altogether. Well, God says the wrong road to achieving the righteousness of God is human anger. It never produces the righteousness of God. You ever known somebody that was given to anger? Over my lifetime, which is a little over six decades now, I've known a couple of people like that. I was actually one of them. And what I've discovered by evaluating myself and others is that people who are given to anger often do not see what everyone around them so obviously sees. They are not ruled by the Holy Spirit. They're ruled by a desire to manipulate life, and they try to do that with anger. And say it with me. How often does it work? Never. Say it louder. Never. Brothers and sisters, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, and if you're born again, he does. If he lives in you, he has every intention of ruling your emotions. Can I get an amen to that? But he will not fight you for control of your life. He has already commanded you to relinquish control to him. And part of relinquishing control is refusing to allow this to rule you. Now, you can't help getting angry sometimes, but you can help being ruled by it. And then he goes into a longer section, verses 21 through 25, and I'm calling this intentional actions. He says, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. There's, uh, translations have done some funny things with this, especially the old King James. They t- it talks about the superfluity of naughtiness. I have no idea what that means. But <laughs> the predominant inter- uh, translation of that second phrase is overflow of wickedness. Now, I just want to tell you that these two terms, this filthiness and overflow of wickedness, in, in the original language mean two different things. They, first of all, it means unintentional evil that splashes on you because you walk in a fallen world. That's filthiness. Therefore, lay aside filthiness. This is, the other one speaks of intentional, deliberate evil that we do. Sadly, that happens. So let's, one at a time. Filthiness. Lay aside filthiness. This is a Greek metaphor for soiled clothing. Not too long ago, I had to climb under our house. It's pretty nasty under there. And I came out, and I walked in the house, and Vicki took one look at my clothing, and you know what she said? Throw it away. Throw it away. I don't think she even wanted that to defile the washer. That's how bad it was. That is exactly what God is commanding us here. The Greek term says, or means to literally strip yourself of the defilement from the world that gets on us as we walk through the world. That happens, doesn't it? You know, you could be driving down the road, worshiping, having a great time, and you see something on a billboard that just flashes you, and suddenly your mind is defiled. Or you can be having a good conversation. Somebody says something to you that you take the wrong way. You've been defiled. That is there, and we could talk about a hundred different examples. But evil gets on us as we're in the world. That is the term here. Then he speaks, and we need to cast that away because it has no business staying on us. Just like my dear wife said, throw them away. <laughs> The other term, you know when you're watching a movie and that screen comes on that says some scenes are not suitable for young viewers, viewer discretion is advised, 
God is about to give you that screen here. Except that James has used a very, very graphic term here, and it may require you to have a little audio discretion. I don't mean to offend you, but I do mean to preach the text, okay? Here's what overflow of wickedness. It is an incredibly graphic Greek term. The term is kakia, K-A-K-I-A, and it literally means excrement. Now, God is not trying to offend you by leading James to use that term. But I believe that God is trying to communicate to us how offended he is by our sin. He sees it as excrement on us. The deliberate sins that are intentional and that affect us and those around us. And that's why it's translated overflow of wickedness. Because it's not just ours. It touches other people. And God's instruction here through James is that we must recognize these things within our own lives that defile us and those around us and do everything we can, initiate a diligent process to get rid of it. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been working in the yard, and all of a sudden you realize you've stepped in a present that your neighbor's dog left in your yard. Now what happens? You suddenly have a brand new priority in life. Because you can't go anywhere but your yard with those shoes on. You've got to get that off. That's the picture that God wants us to have here. We must react to the sin that we see when the Spirit of God brings it into our lives. We must react violently and quickly and get that away from us. When we realize that our thoughts just went in a wrong direction, we must run to our merciful God for His forgiveness and cleansing. When we, our emotions get the best of us and we spout off, and by the way, that happens in my home. I'm sure it doesn't in yours, but it kind of does in mine from time to time. And we're quick repenters because we don't want our relationship disturbed indefinitely. So we repent quickly, and that's what we need to do. When, when something gets the best of us and we say something we know has offended somebody, we admit it to the Lord and to the people who have been offended. That's what it means. Regardless of what overflow of wickedness it is, whether it's lust or anger or envy or gossip or anything that's forbidden, the believer who is intent on walking with God and doing what God says needs to respond to the conviction of the Spirit immediately and with the passion of everything that's within him. That's called confession. Read this verse with me. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what that word right there means? The Greek word is hobo legeo. It's two words put together. Homo means the same. Logeo means to speak. And to confess means that we say the same thing to God that he says about the sin. Do you know why some people never get over sin? Because they never say what God says about it. It is not a confession to say, I blew it. It is not a confession to say, I am sorry that you were offended by my words. (laughs) That is so lame. (laughs) It is a confession to say what God says about it. What does God say about sin? First of all, it's an offense to his holiness. 
And so we would confess sin we need to say. It's an offense to your holiness, Lord. I was wrong. I did the wrong thing. I offended you, the, the lover of my soul. It is also, if you read the prophets at all, you see that sin is spiritual adultery. What does that mean? It means that we have loved something other than the Lord God with all our hearts, minds, soul, and strength. That's spiritual adultery. We should confess that. We should say what God says about our sins. It is also idolatry. Why do I sin? Because at that moment, I exalt something in my desire stronger than my desire to love the Lord and walk with Him. That's idolatry. And I don't know about you, but when I'm confessing my sins, I call it what it is. And I suggest that we all do because that's what it means. I'm pointing at that screen, but you, you see this one, sorry. <laughs> um, that's what it means to say what God says about it. He doesn't wink at sin. It cost him the life of his son. And he certainly doesn't want us running around with excrement on us because he has provided a way for us to be clean. As important as putting away the filth is, that is not sufficient in and of itself. We must substitute that which allures our hearts by something of a higher love. And that's why James talks about receiving. Receiving God's word. Verse 21, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. It is the character, listen carefully, it is the character of a true child of God that he wants to receive all that God has said. If you don't want God's word, if you don't spend time in God's word, if your heart is not inclined to doing God's word, brother, you have no business saying that you're a Christian. A born-again person breathes spiritual life, exudes spiritual life, and walks in the ways of God when God shows it to you. And that's why he says, receive with meekness the implanted word. What is meekness? Well, it's humility. It's not weakness. It sounds like weakness, but that's not what it means. It means humility. Now, humility is not being a worthless worm. You've seen some people that slump their shoulders and they, you know, they say, oh, you did a great No, I didn't. You know, that's not humility. That's self-effacement. <laughs> you can actually know that you do some things well and still be humble. God has given us strengths and abilities and determination and creativity and influence. But it is these things that must be under God's control because only he can take us in our fallen state and develop us into what we need to be. That's wisdom. God and God alone can take us and make us usable, round out our weaknesses, overcome our sins, and cause true growth. Wisdom is knowing how God does that, and he does it by receiving the implanted word. What's he talking about? Well, the implanted word, first of all, happened when you got born again. Here's a prophecy from Jeremiah that speaks of uh, Jeremiah 31, 33. Read this. But this is, read it with me. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Stop for a second. You say, well, it's the house of Israel, not us. No, Hebrews quotes this, and he applies it to us. So it is to us. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Where's the implanted word, brothers and sisters? 
It's here. When God causes life to come into your dead soul, he writes his laws across your hearts. He implants it into you. And so in the midst of the trial, what James is saying here, that we receive the implanted word, God is going to speak to you as you submit to him, as you seek his wisdom, as you desire to walk in his ways, as you want. You don't want the trial to have a negative effect in your life. You want it to have a positive effect, and you're submitting your heart to him. God, the Spirit, is going to speak, and he's going to give you a word. You receive that word. You don't push against it. You receive it. See, we open our ears to God's voice. We restrain our lips so that he's not, we're not hindered in hearing from him, and we receive what he gives us for that situation and for that specific point of need. And, man, you need it at that point. So receiving God's word into your life and situation means that you also understand the word's impact, he says, which is able to save your souls. Now, we know that we're saved by the word, the the truth that the word reveals. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I don't think that's the way James is using the term here. The term, he says, because he's writing to believers. And so he says it's able to save your souls. It's here being used in the sense of rescuing you. What do we need to be rescued from? Your own tendency to self-destruct because of sin. I'd love to have a show of hands that people who understand what I'm talking about right now. <laughs> I see some of you nodding, and you know you know we have a tendency to self-destruct. Without the, the restraining power of the Spirit and the conviction, or, I'm sorry, the, the accountability we have with each other, we would all self-destruct. We would. But James says, receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls, and it rescues us from the temptation to fail by sitting in the midst of of the trial. Well, how do we receive God's word into our situations? By doing what it says. Well, that's kind of simple, isn't it? Well, it is simple. But in verses 23 to 25, James uses the term doer of the word three times. 22, but be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, deceiving yourselves. 23, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his face natural face in a mirror for he observes himself goes away and he immediately forgets what kind of man he was in other words he just forgets what he looked like but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work this one will be blessed in what he does james uses the analogy of a mirror we all know what a mirror is for one of the main functions of a mirror is to prevent public embarrassment <laughs> You ever seen people in public that maybe didn't have a mirror at home? Yeah. (laughs) Well, in much the same way, God's Word reveals the imperfections and the needs for improvement right in here. God's Word reveals what we're truly like. True story. We heard a man's wife ask him, Is this dress make me look fat? You're going to think I'm lying, but this is a true story. He said, that dress has nothing to do with it. Now, guys, I do not suggest that you follow our undiscerning brother's example. (laughs) But we can understand that the Word of God functions much like this. It shows us exactly what we're like. And when this happens, what do we do? We receive it intentionally. No excuses. No rationalization. We just say, thank you, Lord. I need to act on what you've shown me. Whatever God's word reveals, that's what you act on. 
And God reveals things so that we'll change. Can I just share something with you? God has known how sinful you are from the very beginning of creation, from before the beginning of creation. The reason you're seeing something as you're in the Word and every day you see something more about yourself is because He is kind and merciful and compassionate towards you. If He showed you everything He sees as soon as you're saved, you wouldn't be able to stand it. You would be slain before Him. But when He shows you something, it is so that you will change. That is an expression of His mercy. And I'll tell you this, if you've given license to sin in your life, sin does not give up its territory easily. We, we were counseling with a young couple recently who got into uh, a lot of flesh patterns, and, and we just told them, we said, this is what the Word says. You will have a battle here because you've been violating God's Word all this time. Sin does not give up its territory easily. Nevertheless, we must take the Word of God when we know it, we're responsible for it, and we must take it with a de- tenacious determination to eradicate those areas that keep us from growing in Christ. Can I get an amen to that? So disciplining ourselves to act intentionally toward the word, toward sin rather, and the word of God is what God is calling us to do. Now we move into our second section, which is on our report card. This this is the calling, and now we're going to, through James's words, we're going to be able to evaluate ourselves as to how we're doing. The first point of measurement is in verse 25. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, you hear that? And continues in it. So the first point of evaluation is consistency. Consistency. And is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. And I understand if you're using the ESV, you see that a doer who acts... But I want to say that that's more of an interpretation, and the New King James has hugged very closely to the original language here, a doer of the work. The term is ergu. We get our term ergonomics from it, and so it's it's speaking of work. And by the way, I have never found it easy to battle against sin. Have you? I think it is work. Don't you? You still with me? But the, the consistency is, James is saying, if you look into God's perfect law of liberty and continue in it. It's not easy, but it's good. It is difficult, but it does a blessed work. So the first measure of growth, whether these things are taking place in your life, is do you see consistency? I didn't say perfection, did I? No, none of us is perfect, but we want to see progress and more and more consistency second measure of growth is genuineness notice verse 26 if anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart this one's religion is what well my bible says useless i I don't know what yours says but the issue here is between what is thought to be true and what is actually true You see, it's not so important that you think you're growing. It's important that you're actually growing. And the readout to the true condition of our hearts is right here. What comes out? Our mouths. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
you know, James uses the, term, the, the, the concept of a bridle. If you think horse's bridle, you're doing the right thing. What's a bridle for? Well, this horse is much bigger and stronger than you, and that bridle brings it into submission. And that is exactly the picture the Lord wants us to have. While the tongue is not large, it is powerful. <laughs> and it is, as James would say later in this book, an unruly evil. The truth is, dear ones, we talk too much about the wrong things. The truth is we can say the right thing the wrong way and thus negate the truth that we're trying to speak. Our tones can communicate derisive things toward people. Our words can lack the grace of the love of God's family that ought to be, that, that ought to be the oil with which they are given to be received. And the Holy Spirit wants us to understand that what comes out our mouths will indicate the genuineness of what's going on inside our hearts. And thirdly, selflessness. Verse 27, James pulls this illustration here of what true religion is. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Some translations say in their distress. What is he talking about? People who can do nothing in return. The purest offering to the Lord is to those who can't pay you back in kind. These two categories of people were some of the bottom of social stratum in their day. They had little or nothing of their own. And the word of God he reveals here that that our selflessness needs to be leveled in our actions toward those who have nothing with which to reciprocate. That is truly Christ-like, and this is exactly a picture of what Christ did. He who possessed all power and all riches and all wisdom, all holiness, all sovereignty, all majesty and justice and equity and glory and honor became a human being to seek and to save us. We were a people sold into slavery to sin. We were a people totally depraved without any ability to raise ourselves up from our destruction. Our sins were as vile and offensive to God as excrement is to us. And we were without resources to come to him. And Jesus sought us. Is anybody glad about that this morning? Christ came to save us and give himself for a people who could give him nothing in return. To make a people for himself, for his glory. And that is why, dear ones, that the picture of service to these two groups of people is a picture of Jesus. It's a picture of pure religion before God. That is what most pleases God. Is there anyone in your life who can't repay you in kind? You pour yourself out in their behalf. And that is an expression of Christ-like love. And he closes with one thing that we all need to hear. He says, and pure and undefiled religion is to visit widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. This is a selflessness in our private worlds to keep ourselves unstained from the world. The world is where the spots come from. 
The world is what causes our flesh to get stirred up. Oh, yeah, I know we have an enemy, the devil, and he's, he's out there. His minions are out there, but our worst problem is right here. Can somebody say amen to that? It's true. Our worst problem is, carries around with us everywhere we go. Let me tell you something, though. What you are in private is what you truly are. That's what you truly are. If you, if you think God's not seeing what you're doing in private or how you're thinking or how you're talking, God goes home with you, by the way, and he hears the conversations in the cars. I'm going to tell you, I, I know, I, I mean, I have time to say this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. There was, when our kids were little, we had the worst Sunday morning ever. By the way, Sunday mornings are hard with little kids, aren't they? Can I get an amen to that? <laughs> we had the worst ever, and I had responsibility in the church for all the Christian ed, et cetera, et cetera. But we had totally destroyed ourselves on the way to church. And we were the first car in the parking lot, and we were a wreck. Vicki and I said, we are not getting out of this car until we are right with God and right with each other. And do you know, I don't know how old the kids were, but they were all little and in the back seat. And we sat there in that car and prayed until the parking lot filled up. <laughs> but that's what it took because we needed to be right with each other and with God. What we are in private is what we truly are. The world's ways are tempting to us, aren't they? The world stimulates our flesh, and we tend to respond the wrong way. But here, James, as an instrument of the Holy Spirit, is reminding us to keep ourselves unspotted. What do you do if you get spotted? You confess. You say what God says about it. Listen, you ought to be a really good confessor, because none of us goes through this life without getting spotted by the world. We have a personal responsibility to abide in the purity of Christ and to maintain that purity. That's how you can ensure your growth. That's how you can ensure it. Do you have open ears to hear what God says? Have you learned the discipline of restraining your lips so that you don't hinder what God is saying to you? Have you allowed the Spirit of God to make more and more inroads so that your emotional reactions are controlled by His Spirit? And do you intentionally lay aside the sin that defiles you and everyone else around you and receive God's word into your life. Remember, he must increase, we must decrease. As his life grows in its control over us, our lives decrease in the orientation of self. And we mark it with consistency, genuineness, and selflessness. Some of us in the room may be in deep trouble this morning. We have not listened to the word. We've talked too much about the wrong things. We've short-circuited our ability to hear God's voice. Our emotions are everywhere except under God's control. We're not saying no to sin, and we certainly haven't received his word. Some of us haven't even opened it since last Sunday. It shows by our inconsistency, by the breakdown in between what we claim and what we are, and by a dominating self-orientation in life. I'm not saying that because I know you well. I'm saying it because I know humanity well. God's word is given to us, brothers and sisters, to break the self-tyranny of slavery to sin. I want you to do something. I want you to go back to your notes. This is why you needed this. And you don't have to write unless you want to. 
but I want you to write or think in terms of either progress or no progress. Not perfection, but I want you to ask yourself, Am I, do I have open ears? Am I listening to God's word? And I want you to do that evaluation right now. Am I consistently listening for God's voice amid trial? Progress or no progress? Is there genuineness? Do I really want to hear God's voice? Am I putting aside my selfish desires so that I hear his voice? Am I restraining my lips consistently, genuinely, selflessly? You see what I'm saying? I want you to take a moment now, just a moment. And do an evaluation. If you're, not, if you're not comfortable writing, I'm fine with that. Do it mentally. But do take a moment and think through this. And I'll give you a moment. When you finish, just bow your head reverently. Father, as we have listened to your word, we have heard your voice saying to us, this truth is for you. We can't say what you've said to one another, but we can know what you've said to us. And we pray, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room right now, that as they've evaluated themselves before you, before your all-seeing eyes, that they have also taken the next step to confess and forsake and to receive all that you say, your power, your indwelling spirit, your love, incredible mercies toward us. It is because of your mercies that we are not consumed. Lord, we honor you as our God who has not only saved us by grace, but keeps us in grace. With your heads bowed and your eyes still closed, I just want to say to you that if you did that evaluation and came up short or even if you were afraid to engage self-evaluation that's concerning God wants us to respond to his word if you're unsure if you even have a relationship with God this would be a perfect day to make sure to receive God's gift of eternal life because everyone who repents of his lost condition flees to Christ as his only hope for eternal salvation will be saved believer there is always hope for you and me God's word was given to change us you are invited to let him have his way in your heart thank you Lord Jesus for being our God thank you that as we approach the communion table we can do so knowing that we have heard your word and responded appropriately and that we have cleansing before you. Thank you that your blood washed away all our sins and that your word is given 
to cleanse us on a daily basis through confession and appropriation of the truth. We thank you that your spirit lives within us and that he is doing the evaluation now of each of our hearts. And we pray in the Lord Jesus' name and for his glory among us. Amen. Mike.